Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Mark 14, 53 to 72. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against them. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit on him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, Father, as we come before your word, give us insight into our hearts and awareness of our need for you. As we hear from your word, uh, may you speak to us and may we, uh, in humility, uh, not only hear your word, but submit to it too. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, I don't know if you were following pop culture news, but there was a lawsuit happening over in the U.S. between the famous actress Gwyneth Paltrow and the, this guy here, Terry Sanderson. Who here followed it or knows about it? Does anyone? Half of the room, maybe? Uh, I, I, I went on YouTube and I watched it so you don't have to. Uh, but it's between this guy, Terry Sanderson, and Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, the actress. And what happened is Terry uh, accused, alleged that Gwyneth... Uh, crashed into him on the ski slopes uh, while skiing back in 2000, 2016, so a while back. 
And the way it works is uh, like a car crash. If you're the one coming downhill and you see someone in front of you, you have to uh, swerve out of the way. If you run into them, then you're at fault for crashing into them from behind. Anyways, he accuses that Gwyneth crashed into him. And because of that, it resulted in broken ribs, pain, permanent traumatic brain injury, loss of enjoyment of life, and emotional distress. And so he was asking for damages first of, of $3 million. That was adjusted to $300,000. And what was funny was as the, as the trial went on, we learned more about who this person is and his character. The lawyers, uh, as they interrogated him, uh, because she countersued, uh, as they interrogated him, the lawyers managed to pull up all these holiday photos of him going kayaking, zip lining, hiking, uh, Machu Picchu, traveling around Europe, all happening within a year after the accident. So that sounds a bit mm, sus, doesn't it? Uh, he continued to live his life to the fullest, really. And it became clearer and clearer, to the jury at least, that Gwyneth Paltrow was not at fault, and in fact, he crashed into her. Uh, that's what happened. The decision came out on Friday. They decided in favor of her. She was awarded $1, because that's all she asked for. She was like, it's the principle that matters. I'm not here for the money. It's the principle. People can't get away with making false claims, especially targeting celebrities like herself. Now, sure, who knows what truly happened? He says, she says, but I, uh, I'm going to side with Gwyneth on this one, right? Uh, it's not, there's nothing fun about having false accusations made against you, is there? Nothing fun about that. There is, there is something we all would feel unsettled by, especially if there are threats to your reputation, to your finances, or your very livelihood. And in those moments, you want to defend yourself. You want a fair trial. You, wanna, uh, you want your friends and your bystand, the by bystanders to speak up for you so the truth can be known and justice performed. Don't we want that? Wouldn't we all want that? In our story today, we find ourselves in a different type of court, don't we? It's a religious court where Jesus is on trial and Jesus has false accusations thrown, thrown at him, made against him. Yet while he could fight for his right to justice and truth, he allows himself to be condemned. Why? Let's look at the passage together. Have your Bibles open so you can follow along where, where I'm going with this. But we're in this section of Mark's Gospel, and it's towards the end, right? We're in the thick of the narrative where Jesus is, is soon to be crucified. And last week, we looked at the events that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the last night before his death. He's, he's having his, he had his last meal with his disciples. And in the late hours of the night, he goes to pray in the Garden. And there, as he prayed, last week we, we covered this, we're told he's in anguish and pain and torment as he considers the cup of God's judgment that he soon has to face. We were left in the narrative uh, with hearing how he was arrested at the end by an angry mob and deserted by all his friends, his disciples, as he was taken away. That's where we left off last week. Now, if you've been with us, we've been going through Mark, and you would have heard me say multiple times in the book of Mark, Mark, the author of this gospel, he writes in a way where he wants to really feed us a sandwich. Two slices of bread with filling in the middle. This is our first slice. This is what he does in this passage as well. We have a, a sandwich in front of us. The first slice has to do with Peter. Right? He's known as uh, Jesus' closest apostle often throughout the, the Gospels. He's almost like, a, you could say, a 2IC, the second in charge. He becomes one of the chief apostles in the early church after Jesus uh, dies and, and leaves the earth. But last we heard in verse 52 was that he and all the other disciples deserted Jesus and ran away. Well, here he shows up again. He's quietly following in the shadows. And we hear in verse 44, uh, 54 where he's at. 
Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. He isn't, he isn't at this point wanting to stand up for Jesus or, or with Jesus. He's just observing from afar at a distance. Uh, we're told he's in the courtyard, outside, like the backyard of the house. And not only has he distanced himself from Jesus, he's also getting comfortable, isn't he? Warming himself at the fire. Now, we're going to come back to Peter as we, as we look at uh, the, the other slice of, of the bread. But look, let's look at the filling of the sandwich, because that's where Mark really wants to draw our attention to. Jesus, he's been arrested. He's taken to the, 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 the house of the high priest to go on trial. Uh, the high priest at this time was a guy called Caiaphas. It's a religious court here with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, that's a big word. It's made up of about 70 Jewish leaders that act as judges with trials, right? With the high priest uh, also there. Now, um, the, the Sanhedrin basically was like a tribunal, you could say. They hear matters, they pass judgments according to the Jewish laws that they're bound by. Now, if you to see what was happening to Jesus, and you read about this, as a, as a first century Jewish person, if you were reading this, you would have picked up some major red flags that might not be so evident for us as we read this. Let me explain. The Sanhedrin, they had in place a number of rules, laws, you could say, regarding the, con- the conduct of their own trials. One of those rules was a trial could not take place at night or during the time of an important festival. Remember the time of this. This is happening at night. It's happening at the time of the Passover festival. You know, it's, it's interesting how, how things happen in the middle of the night. Uh, things happen in the cover of darkness. Shady things happen. Shady business goes on, right? It, it reminds me back when, uh, this was 20 years ago at night, an incident that happened at night 20 years ago. I was about 16 years old. My parents, they, they, they owned a small convenience shop. Uh, it was a small convenience store called Captain Convenience in the sleepy suburb of Chapel Hill. If you're ever on the west side of Brisbane and you want to go check it out, I think it's still there. Now, we would open till 9 p.m. every night, right, in this quiet little uh, area of the suburb. I would do night shifts after school. Uh, on weekends as well, I'd, li- I'd do the close-up because I know it's when it's quiet and I can just chill and, and I can just close up quietly and clean up. Uh, one night, I remember that I was there, I was 16, I was in grade 11, and I was there with my co-worker. He was a uni student at the time. We were getting ready to, to shut up shop. He goes out back to clean up. I'm at the front at the register. Two men came in wearing these homemade balaclavas, wearing a jumpsuit as well, one with a shotgun and one with a machete. And I looked at them and I, I was about to laugh because like, I was like, this, is a, this has got to be a prank. Like, they look like they're robbing a bank. Like, we're this tiny little shop on the corner. Why would they come rob us, right? That's the first law that came to my mind. But they looked, they, they started yelling at me. Give me all your money. Give us some cigarettes. What, those, sort, those sort of words were coming out of their mouths. And, and I soon realized they, weren't, they, were, they were serious. <laughs> so, I, so I gave them what they wanted as slowly as I could. And they ran out the door into the darkness of the night. Night is when the shady stuff happens. You know, what happened? They, the, the cops came and they couldn't find them. And, 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 and my coworker ran down the street looking for them. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, but that's what he did. And, and that's what happens at night. Less crowds around. Less witnesses to see what happened. And here we are with the Sanhedrin. They're breaking their own rules, conducting a trial at night. It's interesting, isn't it? If that's not enough of a red flag, here's another one. According to their rules, all trials had to take place in this hall called the Hall of Hewn Stones. Right? It's, it's the official place for trials to happen. It's located in the temple area. Where is this happening? At the house of the high priest. Mm. Another one, if they're going to sentence someone to death, they need to meet again the next day to confirm it so they're not jumping to conclusions. 
Another one, you, you need at least two to three people who agree on all the facts and details. Anyone who gives false testimonies will be sentenced to the same fate as the one accused. This is all just a little sus, isn't it? What, what happens at this trial? If anything, this, this trial is really illegal. It's what you call a, a kangaroo court. I don't know if you've heard that term before, uh, but it's this idea where a trial is held by a, a, an unofficial court, uh, a group of people wanting to pin a crime, a, a guilt upon someone without any good evidence. Uh, I looked it up. Wikipedia says it's a, called a kangaroo court because it jumps over certain evidence, right? That's what this religious court is doing. It's a kangaroo court meeting in the middle of the night at some guy's house looking for shreds of evidence to make Jesus guilty of capital punishment. And we're told again and again that there are these false accusations and testimonies made against Jesus, aren't we? From verse 55, I'm going to read this again to you, and let me emphasize some of the words here. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, gave no answer. You know, one of the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you know, one of the Ten Commandments says, thou shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That commandment's being broken right here again and again and again. Alarm should be going off if you are watching this unfold. False testimonies, accusations, none of them true, none of them in agreement. Jesus never said he'll destroy the temple. He said you'll de- they will destroy the temple. You'll destroy the temple. He'll be the one that will re- rebuild it. He said that in John chapter 2. But when the high priest asked if he has anything to say, well, Jesus remained silent. And I guess I would too. I mean, these fools can't even get their story straight. But perhaps Jesus is just fulfilling really what Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, said about him. In Isaiah chapter 53, I've got it on the screen, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The fulfillment of Scripture is happening in these moments, in these very moments, from hundreds of years before. But maybe also Jesus is just holding his cards, right? Because it's the next question that's going to lead to the outcome he knows must happen. In verse 61, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the gloves are off, cards are on the table. And he could have just said, Yep, I'm the Messiah. I, it would have been bad, but not that bad. Claiming to be the Messiah, it's claiming to be the person God sent uh, to save the people, to be a, a warrior, political king who will bring victory to the, to the Jewish nation. That's what, that's to Israel, that's what a Messiah would, if he said that, mm, you know, that's bad. But then he goes on to identify himself as the son of man at the right hand of God coming on the clouds of heaven. That's blasphemy right there. Of course that would lead to some clothes being torn. You know, that's, that's, and he's intentional. Why is he, with those words, he's intentional. There's an allusion to back to Daniel chapter 7, another Old Testament prophet, and he says this, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, was led into his presence. 
Ancient of Days is God. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, the clouds of heaven are always a reference to God's glory. We saw it in a few chapters earlier in Mark, in Mark where uh, Jesus was transfigured. If you know that story of his transfiguration, a cloud appears and God's voice and presence is there. Those clouds of heaven are what we call his Shekinah glory, which just means the presence of his glory, his Shekinah glory. So Jesus is saying he's not just some man, some Messiah figure. He's the Son of God himself, coming with God's presence, with the authority of God. And and as Daniel prophesied, the, the glory and power, and everyone will one day worship him. That's what he's saying. And not only that... They would have picked up on this language of being at the right hand as well. That's, that's, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but Psalm 110 verse 1, it speaks of being at the right hand of God. It's a reference to being the judge of the world. So sitting at the right hand of God, he's going to be judge, saying he's coming on the clouds of heaven. He's saying he's the son of God coming, son of man, son of God coming. Now, while, while, coming, uh, while, while being Messiah is one thing, he's making a claim to deity, isn't he, right now? Worthy of worship will one day return to judge the world. Of all the things he could have said, he's deliberate with his words, isn't he? He throws a, a, a reverse card on them. <laughs> he's the judge, not them. And while he might be arrested, while he might be spat on, beaten up, one day he'll return with glory and every knee will bow and he will judge the world. Truth in the face of false accusations. Speaking the truth against the flood of false testimonies, Jesus is fully aware of the outcome of his actions right now. And what we see here in this text is he, it goes from a trial to a riot. The high priest turns into the Hulk, tears his clothes. And we read there where some spit on him, they blindfold him, they strike him with their fists. Oh, I don't know how you feel when you read that. It makes me a little angry. The disrespect they show to our Lord Jesus. How dare they accuse our Lord Jesus of being some criminal? Our Lord Jesus who loved the vulnerable, who healed the sick, who showed grace to the sinner. How dare they say these things? How dare they spit on him and punch him and then condemn him to death? I mean, my heart is breaking as I read these words. If I saw the scene unfold before my eyes, but what would I do if I was there? Would I be brave enough to speak up and defend my Lord Jesus? Because while he's on trial inside the house, there's another trial going on outside in the courtyard, isn't there? But this trial isn't held by Jewish leaders. The person who is doing the questioning and making the accusations, she has no authority, she has no power. She's a servant girl. And what a contrast. What we see is, is Peter out there on, under trial, and this is the, the second slice of our sandwich. He gets questioned by this girl, this servant girl. Hey, 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 you are also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know, I don't, I don't know, I understand what you're talking about. He said, and he went out into the entryway. It's pretty shifty, Peter, right? He's, he's, distancing, he's distancing himself even further away from Jesus. Again, the servant girl saw him. And she said again to those standing around, hey, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. And Peter loses it. He just loses his temper. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. He's not swearing at them, so don't, don't think the F word or anything right now. He's saying that the name of God, you know, I swear by the name, may God strike me down. I don't know this man. 
He sounds like he's, he's getting really defensive. He, he's flustered. He's probably fearful. He doesn't want to be identified as a follower lest he face the same fate as Jesus in this moment. Verse 72, immediately the, roast, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. You know, it's just earlier in Mark's gospel when Jesus spoke to his disciples about following him. It means taking up your cross. It means denying ourselves. And in, in, in that chapter, that same, within the same breath, it's in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Peter would have heard those words himself. Peter would have seen Jesus do so many miracles. Peter would have seen his power and his love. Peter was the first to, to, to say and confess, Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus predicted that Peter would disown him three times, Peter, we're told, in, this is the beginning of, uh, in, the, in chapter 14, uh, he insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. This is that Peter, one of the great apostles. And here he is denying even knowing Jesus. Even Peter fails to be faithful. I said this last week, but even the best of people are still people. Flawed, imperfect, at times faithless, forsaking our Lord Jesus in the face of fear. And we're seeing clearly these contrasts happening, aren't we? Jesus speaks truth, I am, in the face of false testimony under trial. Jesus stays faithful even when his closest apostle Peter is faithless under trial. It's quite sobering, isn't it? Mark wants us to see Jesus is alone, worthy to die for others, even in the midst of faithlessness happening around him. He remains faithful to the ones who have fled, who have distanced themselves and deserted him. And when you hear about this, this idea of the covenant of grace in the Bible and Christianity, this is it. Jesus, in his perfect righteousness, in his holiness, he had no sin. He went to the cross on our behalf, even when we were sinful, when we were disobedient, even in our moments of faithfulness, faithlessness. His grace and love covers us. As tragic as this scene reads, and as heartbreaking as it is, to even imagine our Lord Jesus faithfully fulfilled the Scriptures and the will of God, so that his life could be given up for, life, for your life and mine those of us who were once distant from God. For you and I, who even like Peter, even in our belief in Christ, will still at times forsake Jesus. You know, you and I at times, uh, in our words, our actions, whether actively or passively, don't we do that? Don't we deny knowing Jesus in fear, in shame? Because sometimes we'd rather just play it safe, preserve our own lives, preserve our own dignity, preserve our own status and reputation rather than stand up and stand for our Lord Jesus? Oh, how I wish, how I wish I could say that I'd never disown him. I would never forsake Jesus. I would even die for him. How I wish I could say that in confidence. But put under trial, surrounded by my peers, with a potential of my reputation that could be ruined, that I might lose everything I've worked for, that the world I've built could come crumbling down, or simply a gun to my head, would I stand for Jesus? How I wish I could say I would. 
But when I reflect on my life and look at my heart, I'm Peter. I'm the disciples who have fled and deserted Jesus. I've been there many times. In my cowardness, I'd stay quiet. In the moments, I could have spoken up. I turned a blind eye when I could have acted. I turned to sin instead of denying myself and taking up my cross. I'm Peter. That's me. Isn't that you too sometimes? Even if God were, were to go like a thousand kilometers of the way to reach us and ask of me to go a few millimeters to bridge that gap between him and I, even then I couldn't. My sin would hold me back. But thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus and his grace, his sacrificial love that bridges that gap for you and I. He stands under trial for us and surrenders himself. The great I am gives himself up to history's greatest injustice for our sake. And he goes to the cross. He dies for my sin. He graciously chooses to give up his life so that I could be forgiven. So that I could now walk in righteousness. Not due to my good works, far from it, but due to the faithfulness of Christ in his obedience. His life for mine. So that one day when we stand, when I stand before God on Judgment Day and He sees me and he, he doesn't look at how naughty or nice I've been because there's no works I can do to make up for my sin. Instead, He sees the blood of Christ. His blood is the stamp upon my life in which I now belong to Him. That's for you too. And for you in this room who feels very distant from God, some of you who might not yet say that you're a Christian here, that's what Jesus has done for you too. You see, friends, as tragic as this trial is that Jesus stands under, we really see the grace of God shine through this darkness, don't we? You see, no Christian is immune to what we say is apostasy. Apostasy means denying or renouncing God. Even this apostle Peter, he's an apostate at this moment. We aren't immune to it. But no Christian is beyond the promise of grace either. The church, we can be honest and vulnerable about our sins and our failings without shame because we, the church, are so convinced about the grace and forgiveness of God in Jesus. Praise the Lord. Yet we can't leave this passage without hearing the warning. While the grace of God is so amazing and it, it, it gives us assurance of our salvation, are we going to take it for granted? Are we simply giving lip service to Jesus while our hearts and our lives are far from Him? I mean, it's easy to call ourselves Christians, yet distance ourselves from Christ. Uh, no one likes the feeling going through trials. Our default is to self-preserve, observe from a safe place out in the courtyard. Yes, I'll follow Jesus if it's comfortable. Yes, I'll go to church if it suits my schedule. Yes, I'll serve God if it's not inconvenient. Yes, I'll talk about Jesus to others if I know for absolute certainty it won't affect the way they see me. Only when it's safe from a distance. And perhaps today we need to put our hearts on trial and confront ourselves with these hard questions. Are you a Christian who has distanced yourself from Jesus? Do your workmates know you're a Christian? Do your friends outside of church know you're a Christian? Does the way you use your money and your time and your relationships that you invest in, do, does that reflect the, that you follow Jesus? 
Or are we simply living a life that denies Jesus as our Lord over our lives? As difficult as those trials may be, may we turn to Christ in those moments. Comforted knowing his faithfulness gives us our assurance, yes. Comforted knowing that we have salvation purely because of Christ's death and resurrection. But also praying, praying and asking the Spirit to help us to stand in courage. Stand in courage for Jesus in a world that is so distant from God. Let's pray for that now. Father, we humble our hearts before you. Enlighten our hearts to help us see where we fall short, the mistakes we make, the the times we fail. We do confess, Lord, at times we deny Christ. We are are at times self-centered, self-preserving, self-glorifying in the way we live. At times we distance ourselves from Jesus because we're ashamed or we're fearful, or we're we're simply sinful and would rather prioritize our own self over you. Uh, Father, may the knowledge of you, the the salvation and grace received, inspire, inspire and empower us to be courageous in faith and unashamed of our Lord Jesus. Help us to take up our cross. Help us to put to death our sin so that Jesus, the faithful one, can be glorified through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, Amen.